be seated, please. And join me in prayer. Let's pray to the Lord. Almighty God, we praise you that you are a speaking God. Um, That you are a God who has revealed yourself, uh, your attributes, your ways, and your will to us through the prophets and the apostles of old and the scriptures that they wrote down after you spoke to them. We thank you that this is a sure word that we have before us. And that in it, we can know your will, your ways, and your peace as we trust in you, the God of Scripture. Please bless us now as we listen to your word preached. Grant me unction, O Lord, to proclaim that which is true, that which is faithful uh, to this text. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You children who are listening, how many of you children have heard of something called the coronavirus? Or COVID-19? You might have heard of it referred to that as uh, also. I'm almost certain all of you children, even the young ones who are listening, probably have heard those words by now, of those things by now. This thing, coronavirus is a really, really, really little creature that you can't see, that none of us can see because it's way too small for our eyes to see. But it is a little creature that is making a lot of people around the world sick. Actually, it's even killing some people. Uh, And it's making a lot of people sick because it spreads really, really easily. And in order to stop the spread of this virus that's making so many people sick, everyone is needing to take drastic measures. We have to do uh, things that are very different from what we normally have, would do uh, if it weren't for this um, disease spreading. Our leaders in our country are telling us we have to avoid going to restaurants and avoid going to uh, other places, to the gym and uh, lots of other places. We're supposed to stay home and stay away from other people and not uh, get near other people. And there are other things as well that are measures that are being taken to stop the spread of this virus. And the combination of these drastic measures that we're all being required to do, plus the risk of getting sick from this virus itself, is making a whole lot of people really worried and really afraid. And in fact, it's tempting a lot of Christians to be really worried and really afraid as well. The prophet Habakkuk that wrote the words that I just read to you a few moments ago also faced a similar temptation. He was a, an Old Testament believer. He was a believer. He was trusting in Jesus just as we are for his salvation. And he was a believer, but he was tempted to f- be afraid of what might lay in store, what really would lay in store for him and for his fellow believers in the Old Testament age in which he lived. 
And we're going to look at Habakkuk and um, what he faced and how he dealt with the crisis that was going to befall not only him but also his country in the not-too-distant future from when God had this conversation with him. There are three points to this sermon taken from this text. First, we're going to look at the conversation with God in which Habakkuk learned that his whole world would soon be turned upside down. Secondly, we're going to look at the attributes of God on which Habakkuk meditated after he learned that his whole world would soon be turned upside down. And then finally and briefly, we're going to look at the response to God that Habakkuk was determined to give after he learned that his whole world would soon be turned upside down. So first, we're going to look at the conversation with God in which Habakkuk learned that his whole world would soon be turned upside down. The book of Habakkuk in the Bible was probably written by the prophet approximately 607 B.C., 607 B.C., and that's based on some internal evidence in the book itself. We can't be absolutely certain of the date, but it's probably a very good guess. And it was about 20 years before the events that God told him were going to take place actually took place. So it was about 20 years that Habakkuk was going to have to wait for uh, these events that God uh, spoke to him about. But before we get to uh, what God said was coming upon him and his nation, uh, verses 1 through 4 of Habakkuk chapter 1 describe, uh, Habakkuk there is describing the moral and spiritual bankruptcy of the visible church of Habakkuk's day. Remember, we uh, believe that the church uh, has always been in existence. It didn't come into existence during the New Testament age after Jesus rose from the dead. There has always been a church, a spiritual people of God, resting in the Messiah. Uh, in the Old Testament, they didn't know his name, but they were they referred to him as the Messiah or the seed of the woman. Uh, and in the New Testament, we know his name, Jesus of Nazareth. But at any rate, Habakkuk is uh, bemoaning the horrible state of Israel. Actually, it wasn't Israel. The, the kingdom of Judah is where Habakkuk lived. And he's bemoaning the horrible spiritual condition of that nation, which was also the visible church of the day, the southern kingdom of Judah. And it was a nation that was supposed to be, because these were the covenant people of God, uh, after all. Judah was supposed to be a beacon of peace uh, and of righteousness. But it had, over uh, a couple of preceding centuries, up to Habakkuk's day, instead become notorious for violence and for injustice and for law-breaking. Why had this happened to the Old Testament church, the nation of Judah? Well, because as a whole, not every single person in it certainly, but as a whole, Judah had turned her back on her covenant Lord. Uh, Collectively, the nation church had said, we don't need Yahweh anymore. And that's why they fell into this horrible state of um, wickedness that existed in Habakkuk's day. Now, prior to writing these words here uh, that we have recorded in our Bible, 
Habakkuk had repeatedly, apparently, begged the Lord to do something about these awful state of affairs in his, in his, uh, amongst his people. And here, in the opening verses of Habakkuk, the first four verses, the prophet does this again. He is beseeching God. He is, he is complaining to God about the circumstances of his, uh, uh, of his land, of his nation, uh, and he's making a plea to God to do something about it. Now, Habakkuk was undoubtedly thinking that if and when God responds to his plea to do something, that God will do, uh, will respond to that plea by bringing spiritual revival uh, and awakening to um, God's people. The way he did in Josiah's day when uh, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law, when the temple was being repaired in the temple. That's how he thought God was going to answer his prayer. Well, God did answer his prayer. told him what the answer was to be in this uh, book. His, uh, but the answer that God gives Habakkuk is not at all the way God, excuse me, the way Habakkuk expects him to answer. How does God answer? Well, that answer is found in verses 5 through 11. Let me read it again. Here the Lord is speaking, after Habakkuk has finished speaking. Look among the nations. Remember, look among the Gentiles. That's what the uh, Lord is telling uh, Habakkuk there. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans is another name for the Babylonians. Uh, they're synonymous, essentially, descriptions of the same people. Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves, or at least so they thought. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. And uh, he goes on. The Lord does. I won't bother to read the rest of it uh, to you now, but you can read it yourself. But what God essentially is saying to Habakkuk, his servant, is... I'm going to bring the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, down upon your nation in order to punish her unbelieving citizens for their ungodliness and their apostasy against me. That's essentially what God is saying here in these uh, five or six verses or so. As we just read, the Babylonians are a particularly wicked people. They are fierce. They are impetuous. They are dreaded by uh, all their adversaries and feared. They are violent. Uh, They were a horrible nation. And they were a nation that was even more unrighteous, and that wasn't easy to do, and godless, than Judah herself was as a nation. Habakkuk makes that observation a little bit later. So God is going to bring this invading army of butchers 
upon God's people. God's people who were externally God's people. Very few who were actual servants of and um, believers in uh, God and tr- uh, servants of God. Most of them were just uh, hypocrites, the vast majority, of course. But God is going to bring this nation of fierce warriors down upon the heads of the nation of Judah, Habakkuk's nation. Well, Habakkuk struggles to process what he has just heard God say. He can't understand why the Lord would do such a drastic and terrible thing to his church, to Habakkuk's country. He says in verse 13, the latter portion of that Habakkuk does, Why dost thou look with favor on those who deal treacherously? There, he's probably thinking of the uh, Babylonians. Um, perhaps also the, fo- the evil folks that inhabited Judah, but I think there he's talking to, about the Babylonians. Why art thou silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Again, probably referring to the Babylonia- Babylonians who were going to one day do just that, swallow up um, the inhabitants of Judah. He can't really understand why God is answering his prayer this way. He's in effect saying, Lord, how how could you allow this wicked and vicious people, the Babylonians, to destroy your people, your covenant people, who, though, yes, guilty of much sin, and I even told you that, reminded you of that, are nonetheless more righteous than the Babylonians. Doesn't that fly in the face of your holy hatred of evil? Again, that's a paraphrase of what Habakkuk was saying and does say there in verse 13 and beyond. He's questioning God. Well, God then proceeds to respond to Habakkuk's questioning of his decision to, if I can put it this way, sick the Babylonians on the Old Testament uh, church of the day, the kingdom of Judah. And God's response starts in verse 2 of chapter 2. I'll read it. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It's future, in other words. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. It will certainly happen, is his point. Though it tarries, though it waits, 20 years is what it ended up waiting before the Babylonians actually came, although Habakkuk didn't know it was going to be 20 years. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, probably a reference to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man for that, so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Again, probably a reference to the Babylonians, or more particularly to Nebuchadnezzar. 
So that's how God responds. And here, God is basically saying, if I can paraphrase, yes, Habakkuk, I am going to use the Babylonians to punish Judah for her ongoing rebellion against me. And though you may not understand why I have decided to do this uh, now, and how I can do such a thing without compromising my holiness uh, or my justice or my hatred of evil, I want you to trust me. That's what God essentially told Habakkuk. Now, what God was saying is cataclysm is coming to your land. And to you, perhaps, meaning Habakkuk. Cataclysm has not come to our world yet. Yes, this is a crisis. But you and I are not facing the same degree of calamity that Habakkuk and his countrymen were facing in their near future. But there are parallels between ancient Judah's situation that they were soon to be facing and ours that we are now facing. Just a few that come to mind. First is, God was the one who ultimately decreed and brought about Judah's crisis. He was the one who was sending, or going to send, the Babylonians uh, to conquer Judah. God precipitated that event, and he has precipitated the spread of the coronavirus in our day. God is in charge of both circumstances. Secondly, God's decision to bring the Babylonians down upon Israel was an act of judgment upon the wicked people that inhabited that land, which was the Old Testament church. And the coronavirus and its rapid spread in our day may well be an act of judgment by God, uh, perhaps upon the world at large and perhaps even upon the visible church, portions of it at least. And thirdly, similarities or parallels, the third parallel is that true believers such as Habakkuk were in his day going to be caught up in God's judgment upon the wicked. as will true believers in the current crisis today, in our country and around this world. Christians are going to die. Christians are going to get sick. Christians are going to suffer financial loss and loss of jobs. So, we have looked at the conversation with God in which Habakkuk learned that his whole world would soon be turned upside down. Now let's look at the attributes of God on which he meditated, Habakkuk meditated after he learned that his whole world would soon be turned upside down. First thing that Habakkuk, one of the things rather that Habakkuk pondered uh, early on was the fact that Yahweh, that is the Lord, is the sovereign Lord of history. The Babylonian invasion, as I've already indicated, would be, first and foremost, an act of God. This is a sobering truth, which God himself asserted back in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1, when God was speaking there and telling Habakkuk what was coming. And it was also a truth which Habakkuk doesn't shy away from repeating. 
He says there in verses in verse 12, the second part of verse 12, Thou, O Lord, hast appointed them, meaning the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to judge. And thou, O Rock, hast established them, the Chaldeans, to correct. Meaning your covenant people, the church. Indeed, God is the ultimate cause of every single event that ever has or ever will happen in human history, whether it's favorable or unfavorable. This includes the pandemic that is spreading across our globe now and other future crises that may reach worldwide proportions. God is responsible for this pandemic. It was not ultimately, that's the key word, ultimately caused by a human being's consumption of an improperly cooked bat in Hubei province in China, which is what I was heard was the source of this uh, mutation, this virus mutation. That is not what caused this. God did. The sovereign Lord of history. Verses, there are a number of verses that make this point, but a couple that I'm going to read to you. One is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14, where we read this. This is Solomon speaking, and he says in verse 14 of chapter 7, In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not discover anything that will be after him. And then similarly, over in Isaiah 45, verse 7, we read, starting in verse 6, I'll read, I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being, and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. He is indeed the sovereign God of history, the one who decrees all things and causes all things to occur ultimately, although he uses secondary means to bring them about, including men, including armies like the Babylonians, for example. And the fact that God is in charge of all things and of these events and has brought this event upon us in our day, this would be a cause for great apprehension and fear, terror in fact, were one of the gods of the Roman pantheon in charge. But thankfully they are not. No, the true and only God is the God of the Bible. And it is he who is responsible for sending this virus upon our world. And he is a God whom you and I can trust, just as Habakkuk found grace to trust the Lord when his world was about to turn upside down. We too can trust him as our world is turning upside down to some degree. So he pondered this fact, Habakkuk did, in verse 12, God is sovereign. He is in charge of all this. 
It is his will that this happened. He also pondered the fact that God is eternal. Again, in verse 12 of chapter 1, we read, Habakkuk starts out and says, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Art art thou not from everlasting? He didn't just pull that out of a hat. Uh, That wasn't just stream of consciousness. That was... He was making a point there. He was reminding, he was telling God by way of a question, but he was also reminding himself that, yes, God is everlasting. He is eternal. As he is trying to process this bad news, this horrible news that God has given him, and formulate a proper response to it, he thinks of God's eternality. For Habakkuk, the fact that God has no beginning and no end, which is what it means to be eternal, That fact reminded him that God would be around long after Babylon and its king had been relegated to the dustbin of human history. The fact that God is eternal and Babylon was not meant that God and not the Babylonians would have the final say regarding Habakkuk's and his fellow countrymen's um, destiny. God would decide, collectively and individually, what would happen to the people of his day living in Judah. And folks, the same is true today. Because God is eternal, because he is not bound by time, because he is indeed outside of time, although he does work in it, he will have the final Word, the final say concerning our nation's future and our own future. Not some little virus. Not the governing officials in our country or other countries. Not the medical establishment. God, the Lord, the triune God who is gracious and loving and in control of what happens to his people. The fact that God is outside of time also may have reminded, probably did remind Habakkuk, uh, and this is only implied, it's not directly stated in the text, but it probably, it goes hand in hand with his eternality. Um, And Habakkuk probably understood this. It reminded him of the fact that God cannot change. Since, of course, change is only possible where there is the passage of time. In order for something to change, you have to, it has to be inside of time, as it were. It has to be bound by time, and of course God is not. So there is no change with God. There might be the appearance of change from our vantage point, but there's no actual change in God's being, in his attributes, in his character, in his plans, in his intentions, ever. And since God's intentions toward his people cannot change, and Habakkuk knew that, Habakkuk probably didn't have to wonder and didn't wonder whether God would keep his promises to him. Oh, he may have had a moment of doubt, maybe a, maybe a, a brief time of doubting. But you can be sure the Lord gave him grace to stop doubting. We know by the end of the book that he did. To stop doubting that God would keep his promises to him and to the Jewish people who were truly his people that is, believers. God would keep his promises. And this is why Habakkuk, 
could trust him in spite of what was about to, well, in 20 years' time, approximately happen to his country and to his church, the visible church. And that's why you and I can trust him when a national upheaval such as the one that we are now experiencing occurs in our land and in our world. We can trust him because he has the final say. He is outside of time. He will be here long after this world is gone. Uh, And he um, is a God who does not change. His promises do not change. Therefore, everything he has said to us here in the scriptures about how he's going to provide for us, care for us, deliver us, uh, bring us through troubles, it's all true. And those promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So you can trust him. Implicitly. And as Habakkuk was trying to process the horrors that were about to befall his land in uh, some years hence, not only did he think of the fact that God is sovereign and the fact that God is eternal and probably also realized that he's unchangeable as well and meditated upon that, but he also meditated upon the fact that God is holy, that God is morally perfect, he refers to in verse 12, uh, at, the, at the end of that question that he asks in the first part of verse 12 in chapter 1, he says, uh, he refers to him as my holy one. And then down in verse 13, the first part of it, he says, thine eyes, God's eyes, your eyes rather, are too pure to approve evil. And thou canst not look on wickedness with favor. Why? Because he's holy. Because he's morally perfect utterly pure, incapable of doing any evil whatsoever. We read in 1 John 1.5, God is light. This is a metaphor. God is light, that is, he is pure, morally. And there is no darkness in him whatsoever. There is no evil. There is no possibility of malice or wrongdoing or evil intent. And you and I, like Habakkuk of old, you and I can trust him because he's holy. Blindingly holy. Perfect. Right. Good. All rough synonyms of the word holy. We can trust him even if our world, and I don't say this to scare you, but it's possible. Even if our world plunges into a 1930s-style depression or worse, and the Antichrist appears on the scene to save us all from this economic meltdown. It's a worst-case scenario. It truly is. But even then, we can trust this holy God who is our Holy One. and whose holiness makes us right in his sight through the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. So Habakkuk meditated on God's holiness as he tried to digest the uh, horrific news that he had heard. And lastly, he also, it's implied, but I think it's clearly there, meditated on the fact that God is trustworthy and dependable. Again in verse 12, at the end of the verse, he says, Thou, O Lord, hast appointed them to judge, and thou, O rock, 
has established them, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to correct. Notice the O-Rock there. A rock, and he's thinking of a huge one, of course, as a metaphor for God, provides a firm and dependable foundation upon which to build a secure dwelling. And I think that's why God, Habakkuk rather, called God his rock, O rock. Because he knew that God was like a massive rock. That he could, if you will, build his emotional and spiritual house on. And not fear that it would be blown away. He knew that he could trust God to be a source of stability and security for him and other true believers like him living in Judah during that day and during and after the Babylonians invaded their land. God could be trusted even as the horsemen are running by with their swords in hand, slicing and dicing. That same divine rock can be trusted by you and me to provide whatever stability or security we may need, will need, in the midst of this current crisis of ours. So let me ask you, how well are you trusting your rock to provide stability and security in your life right now. There's forgiveness, ample forgiveness for your wavering faith if you have wavering faith or if you're distracted. Jesus died on the cross for that if you're a Christian. But we need to refocus if we've lost our focus. You need to refocus if you've lost your focus upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is our rock. We can trust him. Because he is trustworthy, because he is holy, because he is eternal and unchanging, and because he is sovereign over our affairs and those of all men. So those are the attributes that Habakkuk thought on. Of course, there are others that we could think on as well that also bring comfort to us, but those are the ones he thought on as he was faced with this bad, uh, horrific news. But thirdly, we're going to look at, just briefly in chapter 3, at the response to God that Habakkuk was determined to give after he learned that his whole world would soon be turned upside down. Let's read that. In verses 16 and 17, um, Habakkuk basically reiterates what he now knows to be a certainty, what is coming his way and Judah's way. I heard and my inward parts trembled at the sound of my, at the sound uh, of what he heard, in other words, my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones and my place, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. 
for the people to arise who will invade us, meaning, of course, the Babylonians. He is describing, or about to describe, in verse 17, and I'll read it for you. In fact, I'll read it for you right now. Though the fig tree should not blossom, Habakkuk says, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. In that verse, and I purposely didn't finish reading it, Habakkuk is describing the almost unthinkable deprivation that he and his countrymen were probably going to experience as a result of the invading Babylonians' ravaging of their land. Invading armies destroyed everything. Crops, trees, everything. Livestock, burned, all that they could, usually. And that's what Habakkuk clearly expected may well happen. Not only would the choicest gifts of uh, the promised land, figs, grapes, and olives, almost certainly vanish uh, when that invasion took place, so too would the very necessities of life for the Israelite of old. Necessities such as grain, milk, meat. And Habakkuk ponders that very real possibility that that would, in fact, will in fact be the case when those invading invading armies cross uh, the land. But Habakkuk is bound and determined to respond in a certain way. He says in verse 18, If all that should happen, yet I will exalt, that is to say glory, in the Lord. I will Rejoice in the God of my salvation. This is his, he is purposing in his heart before it ever happens, indeed he didn't realize it was going to take this long, but 20 years before it happens. He's purposing in his heart, this is how I will respond, come what may. Why does Habakkuk respond that way? Why does he, why is he so determined to respond in a way that doesn't deny the Lord or um, show distrust in the Lord, but rather dependence upon him. For a number of reasons that he mentions, I say a number, uh, at least three, that I want to bring to the fore here. First, he does so because Yahweh alone is the possessor of the various attributes, those glorious attributes of which Habakkuk had written earlier in the book that I pointed us out, uh, pointed to here uh, in the last point that I made. He knew that God is the sovereign Lord of history. He knew that he is the eternal, unchanging one. He knew that he is the trustworthy God because he is holy and perfect and never lies and, and always keeps his word. He knew that that's who Yahweh was. And so he knew he could trust him. A second reason that he gives in verse 19 of chapter 3 uh, as to why he could determine to rejoice and glory in the Lord. And that is because Yahweh alone would provide him and the rest of the believing remnant in Judah with the spiritual and emotional and even physical uh, strength and stability 
that they would need to endure the many tribulations that they would all certainly face at the hands of the vicious barbarians, the uh, Babylonians, rather, who were, were barbarians. And that they would, as it were, rise above the ascending of the hind's feet, the hind, by, because of his feet, they would, if you will, rise above in the end the calamity that was going to befall them. And he knew that God was going to give him that strength. God was going to give him that stability that, uh, again, the illusion of the hind's feet and, and the uh, sure-footedness of the hind because of the way uh, the, the things that God had given him um, in terms of dexterity. A third reason that um, Habakkuk says, I'm going to trust God. And the last one I'll mention is because the Lord was Habakkuk's Savior. Verse 18, um, he says, Yet I will exalt in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. He is expressing here his confidence that God could deliver him from whatever might come, including from uh, a gruesome death at the hands of the uh, Babylonians, should they come near to him with their armies and with their weapons of uh, warfare. God could deliver him from that. If the Lord willed it, he knew he could. He was confident in that, and he was expressing that confidence by de- uh, saying the God of my salvation, the God of my deliverance, uh, from that what I, from which I need to be delivered. But even if God didn't deliver him from the physical ravages of the enemy that was coming their way, God was most certainly Habakkuk's savior in the sense that God had delivered him from his own divine wrath and curse that was due to Habakkuk and every other human being that has ever walked the face of the earth, including you and me, on account of our sin. And Habakkuk was a sinner. He deserved to go to hell for his sins, but he was not going to hell, which is the place of God's eternal wrath, because he was resting in the promised one, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one of God who was promised throughout the Old Testament scriptures, who was also referred to as the seed of the woman, uh, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that one who was the deliverer of God's people, their spiritual deliverer, and their ultimate deliverer also of their body to a state of well-being in the resurrection. And Habakkuk knew that God had saved him. And he knew where he was going. And he knew that even if death took him, he was going to be okay. Because God was his Savior. These are the very, very same reasons that you and I can trust Yahweh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we go through these uncertain, challenging times that we face here in our country and our world today. We can do that and we can have God there with us through all of this if we are Christians. If you're a Christian, you're in good hands. God is in control. He's holy. He is um, 
not bound by time or space. He is implicitly trustworthy. He's good. He saved you. And all is well. Regardless of what happens in the next few months or years. But if you're not a Christian, now I'm not talking here about a churchgoer. I'm not talking here about somebody who's been physically baptized necessarily. But I'm talking, if you're not a person who is resting in, trusting in Jesus Christ alone, who is 100% God and 100% man, to save you from God's wrath in hell, which is where all of us will land if we don't have Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. If you don't have him as your Savior and Lord, if you're not trusting in him alone to save you, then you have a much bigger problem than the coronavirus or than a declining retirement account. You're facing, you're on the road to hell. And you'll get there unless you flee to Jesus in faith. So that's all you need to hear of this sermon, is flee to Jesus. Cry out to him to have mercy on your soul, to forgive you of your sins, and you will be forgiven. And all will be ultimately well for you and every other Christian. Praise the Lord for it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this prophet and his book that you have providentially put in your your book. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the lessons that we can learn from this man who was a sinner saved by grace. And we thank you that uh, we can apply these truths. Would you please help us, Lord, to do that? Would you please help us to trust you as we remember who you are and your glorious attributes that make you implicitly trustworthy regardless of the circumstances around us. And would you please, Lord, um, help us to exalt in you, to rejoice in you, even in troubled times like these. And if there's anyone here that's listening to my voice that has not fled to Christ Jesus, give him faith to do so now please. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's close our service. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.